Amen. All right, everybody, thank you for joining us tonight. We are going to continue our uh, lesson on the oneness of God. And uh, tonight we're going to be dealing with the mighty God in Christ. We're dealing with the um, basically everything surrounding Jesus as the Son of God. What does that mean? How do we understand that based on everything we've learned? Because um, as we have learned, um, everything we we teach based on doctrine comes from the from the ability to line everything up with the rest of the word of god the the word of god is a cohesive whole it works together it works in unison it's not individualized it's not separated or split apart um so the way we understand doctrine as the bible teaches us is precept upon precept line upon line here a little there a little um and so this is the 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 way we learn about the word of God is here a little, there a little, um, everything coming together as a whole. And uh, one of the main things we've been dealing with in our study, the oneness of God, one of the main reminders we get is there is a mainstream truth of the word of God. There is a central vein of truth throughout the Bible um, that when you understand that of the nature of God, who God is, then the, there can't be a scripture somewhere else that will contradict that truth. Um, so in essence, if if the Old Testament and the New Testament agree that God is one, then it's not it's not something that can be contested later on. There's no new revelation. There's no advanced understanding of the Word of God. Um, when God said, I'm, I am the Lord and beside me there is no God, then that's true all the way throughout the Bible. And uh, tributaries must flow into that mainstream truth of the Word of God. You cannot have a contradictory uh, verse or a contradictory understanding. It all has to be seen in that light. So that's very important to remember um, as a young person studying the oneness of God, studying what does the Bible say about the nature of God, um, knowing what my Trinitarian friends believed and some of the challenges that they presented to me, with believing that God was not a trinity, but was, in fact, one. Um, this understanding that the Bible cannot contradict itself really helped to ground me. And it really helped me to, to say, okay, the rest of the scripture has to fit within this paradigm. It has to fit within this understanding of the word, because it cannot say two separate things. So, when we're dealing with the the mighty God in Christ, we're we're trying to understand the way God uh, defines Himself in these other passages of Scripture, where we see a distinction between Father and Son. And um, we have to. One, another thing that's helpful to know is that the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't really formalized until I, I would say the early echoes of the Trinity. Trinitarian doctrine was starting 150 years after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the church was in existence for a good 150 years before there was these echoes of the Trinity being spoken. And then it was formalized in 300 AD by Constantine with the Council of Nicaea. Um, and the Nicene Creed is actually um, 
it's a it's a creed and this is something not not normal to pentecostals we don't typically recite creeds but a lot of other denominations do and some of them do it weekly they they can they say their their confession of faith or their confession their creed and they they either memorize or read a portion of that creed every single week um and so the the nicene creed is where a lot of Trinitarian doctrine comes from uh, the formal understanding of it. Um, and, and you know, knowing that that wasn't written until, formally written until 300 years after the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then the, the earliest echoes of that creed being taught or understood or being developed didn't happen until 150 years after the scriptures written, the the Jesus is resurrected from the dead, the churches started, and so now we have this new understanding that's starting to develop. Um, that's helpful to me because um, when I read the New Testament, when I read the writings of Paul and the others, I'm I'm reading them, trying to read them through their lens, not through mine. My lens is affected by the Trinitarian controversy, by, by this idea that God is three persons, individual, co-equal, co-eternal, um, and, and um that's my that's the lens I come to the to the word of God with. That was not the lens that Paul and the apostles came to the word of God with. Um, and they came to the to the scriptures with the Jewish lens, uh, very oneness, uh, monotheistic God. And um, so when I read the New Testament, I've got to read it with that lens in mind. Not with you know because I used to I used to struggle as a teenager saying well if if God is one and and Jesus is God and um, why does why does the Bible make these distinctions why confuse everybody why not use language that would simplify that and make it not confusing and the answer to that question for me came from the understanding that that. It, it wasn't a controversy in Paul's day. It wasn't a controversy in the early apostles' day. So they had no reason to write these things with that in mind. Um, and so the way they write it is actually addressing a lot of Jewish ideas about God and trying to in, increase their understanding that it's not just Jehovah of the old, but it's Jesus of the new it's it's the father and the son the son is the manifestation of the father and so we're going to talk about that so um we don't believe that that jesus christ is the father or or rather that uh that jesus uh how, how am i how am i supposed to say this i have to have to word it correctly or else i'm going to get it confused. Uh, we're going to stick with what the Bible says. God was in Christ. It's not that 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 um, Jesus is the Father, but Jesus is the manifestation of the Father. God was in Christ. So the Father was in Christ. The Son is not the Father. That's how I say it. The Son is not the Father, but the Father is in the Son. Okay? So, when we're talking about these terminologies, we have to understand what what the scripture means by these terms. God is a God of relationships. And we see that even in this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.19, God was in Christ. What was he doing in Christ? He was reconciling the world unto himself. So God was in 
a human fleshly manifestation, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Everything God does is based on his desire to restore broken relationships. Sin has broken our connection with God. The minute Adam and Eve partook of the fruit of the garden, that 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 connection with God was severed. And from that moment, God was seeking to restore that connection and, and heal that brokenness that came from Adam and Eve's choice. Romans 5.12 tells us that wherefore as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. And what Romans is teaching us here is that when Adam and Eve sinned, they passed on that nature of sin and death to everybody that came after them. So God determined that this was not going to be the end of the story, but it was for him, it was the beginning of the story. And for us, this is actually where it begins for us was at the ending of a relationship was the beginning of our story. And, and that's really cool because, you know, God doesn't have a problem with something coming to an end. For him, something that comes to an end can just as well as be the beginning of something that he's trying to write or create or restore. And so the Bible uses different terminologies as God demonstrated himself in, in various roles to us in trying to heal and restore this relationship. So let's deal with these these relationships. God the Father. Uh, I want to I want to identify for us what is a biblical term for God and what is not. As we go through this, you'll see what I mean. The term God the Father is a biblical phrase. Um, it refers to God Himself in all of His attributes, everything that He is. When we talk about God as the Father, we're speaking of Him in so many different ways because he was a father in, in multiple ways to us. Um, we see in Galatians 1.1 that the phrase God the Father being used. And in fact, most of the time the phrase God the Father is used is in the greetings of Paul to the early church, which we'll touch on in this uh, study. Maybe not tonight, but, um, but we are going to touch on this. So God is the Father in creation. He That's his first... Uh, What's the way to say it? The first ex exposition as a father, or the first way he exposes himself as father is in creation. Malachi chapter 2, verse 10 says, Have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Now, if you do a concordance study in the Old Testament for the term father in relation to God, you're not going to come up with very many verses. It's pretty sparse. There's not a lot there. Um, but there is a few, like this one here in Malachi, we have all one Father and one God that has created us. So God is our Father in creation. But when we say that, we're also saying that God is the Father of all life. He is not just our Father in creation, but He is the Father of all creation. In other words, He began it. He started it. It was by Him that all things were created, and without Him was not anything made that is made. Um, so when I look at it that way, God is no more my father than he's the father of the trees, of the birds, of the animals. Um, he's my father in creation in that sense. But God is also father of the Son of God. And when you turn the page from Malachi to Matthew, 
and you go from the Old Testament to the New, you're going to find out that the word Father in relation to God is exponentially increased. It's used so much more in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. The term Father in relation to God blows up when you cross the barrier lines between Old and New Testament. And the person who used it the most was Jesus. Um, He's the one who really uh, coined the phrase, and that's because Jesus Christ is the actual begotten Son of God. And God, the Spirit of God, is actually the Father of the man, Christ Jesus. So God is Father of the Son of God. So the first way he's father is father in creation. The second way God is father is he's father of the son of God. John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. So the word, which is God's thoughts, God's understanding, God's mind, God's uh, plan, was made flesh, Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is is, uh, literally translated as tabernacled. Uh, And the word, the thoughts or the plans of God was made flesh and tabernacled among us, and we beheld his glory. Who's his? Well, it's it's God's, the word. Uh, We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So the word, Jesus, the man Christ Jesus that is made flesh, is the only one who's been begotten of the Father, of the Spirit. God has not fathered another body. There is no other body that God has prepared ever. Jesus Christ, the man the, the, the Messiah, the visible manifestation of God, is the only body that God has ever fathered in 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 an actual sense. Um, and then, well, what about us? Well, because we are born again, we are born again of the water and of the Spirit, now God becomes our Father. We are now, He is now God is our Father in redemption. So God is not everybody's father. Uh, uh, he's not the father of us all. In, this, in the creation sense, yes. But in the redemptive sense, God is only the father of those who have been baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Spirit. And I would go so far as to say that God is even the father of those who have repented, because there is the seed of the word that is implanted in their heart enough for them to turn and repent. So if someone has prayed the Lord's Prayer, then then they are on their way to being born again. They're not born yet. They're not saved, per se, but they're they're beginning that process. And so, in a sense, God is is still their Father. He's leading and pulling them. He's trying to to bring them, if you will, to full term and and see them completely saved, born again. Now, that's a completely different lesson. We won't even touch on that tonight. But in essence, God is our Father in redemption. So three ways God's our Father. Creation, He's the Father of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and He's the Father of us all by way of redemption. Uh, Romans 8 verse 15 tells us that, that when we receive the spirit of adoption, we cry, Father, Father, Abba is a, is another is like a term of endearment for Dad. It's like saying Daddy, 
we cry, Abba, Father. So when we receive the spirit of adoption, which is the Holy Ghost, we can cry, Abba, Father. For the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Well, how does the spirit bear witness with our spirit? Well, we speak in other tongues as the spirit gives the utterance. That's the, that's the ABC explanation of that. But that's what Paul is saying here. When you receive the Holy Ghost, when you're baptized, you receive that spirit of adoption and you can literally cry out, Father. So the, the term Father indicates relationship. On every level, it's relationship. God isn't interested in having a, a distanced relationship with us. He's interested in the nitty-gritty things. He's interested in the day-in, day-out things of our life. Um, and so, in contrast to the doctrine of the Trinity, they the the doctrine of the Trinity refers to God the as the Father of the God the Son, who is the co-equal and co-eternal with Him. Now that kind of gets problematic, and so uh, this chart helps us to see. So the Trinity teaches that God the Father is eternally the Father of God the Son. So. God the Son, God the Father, and God the Holy Spirit all work together from the very beginning, even before time began, to create the world and to formulate everything. And um, they have this love relationship, this, you know, uh, because, you know, and, and another very popular doctrine with the doctrine of the Trinity is the, the idea of the love that God has between himself the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they all have love for one another. And this love existed before God loved man. And so it's hard to explain because it's hard to understand. But basically, the understanding there is that, that God the Father is eternally the Father of God the Son, and they have this loving father-son relationship even before time and the world and space and everything. And the Son of God is eternal, so he existed before time, before sin. And so God the Father, God the Son has existed from all eternity, and the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Because the reason why they say the Son is eternally begotten of the Father is because you have a bit of a problem. Um, a son cannot pre-exist his father. The father always pre-exists his son. Um, and so there's always, there has to be a beginning point for the father before the beginning point of the son. Otherwise, you, it doesn't really work. You, the father always comes before the son. Um, so in that case, how do you get around that when you're teaching the Trinity? Well, you simply say that the son is eternally begotten. So However that works, God is always fathering the Son, and the Son is always being fathered by the Father. And these are very confusing terms because it's a very confusing concept and a difficult one to wrap your head around. And oftentimes, when presented with the difficulty of trying to explain this, um, Trinitarian scholars will say something along the lines of, well, God is simply a mystery, and we can't fully understand God because he's a mystery. Um, but the Bible actually teaches that the Son is not eternally begotten of the Father, but he was begotten when Mary conceived in her womb, when the angel said to her, you're going to conceive in your womb and bear a son, and this son is going to be called the Son of God. This is the point in history where the Son of God comes into existence. Before then, it was just 
God. There was no son because that, and that makes sense. That you can follow that timeline. The father pre-existed the son in a sense because God existed before the son was ever materialized in time and space. And so the son is begotten, not eternal. The son of God existed from all eternity only as a plan in the mind of God. The son of God came into actual substantial existence on the incarnation, at which time the son was conceived or begotten by the spirit of God. And so this is what the Bible teaches us and how we have to understand the terminologies of father and son. And so we'll continue. So let's talk about the Holy Spirit. The phrase God the Spirit is not a biblical phrase. You will not find it in the English translation of the Bible, nor will you find it in the Greek or Hebrew uh, original manuscripts of the Bible, because it's simply not there. There is no such thing as God the Spirit. There is the Spirit of God. There is the Holy Spirit. There is the Holy Ghost. These are very biblical phrases and ones that you can feel comfortable using when referring to the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. Now, holy is a descriptive word. It's a descriptive word of spirit. It modifies spirit because you could have an unholy spirit or you can have an unclean spirit, something that the Bible refers to at times. And so when you have a holy spirit, you're talking about God because God is holy. Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44 says, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves and you shall be holy, for I am holy. God made it clear. I'm a holy God. I'm a holy spirit. John 4, 24 teaches us that God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we, we understand that there's only one God. From our previous lessons, we understand that mainstream truth that God is holy, God is one. And so why does the Bible emphasize the Holy Spirit? Is it, you know, and, and these are the questions that come up. Is it trying to show us a new, a person of God, that there is this person within the Godhead that that is called the Holy Spirit? And the answer to that question is very emphatically no. It's just a way to describe the actions and the, the, the way that God is moving. When you think of spirit, both in the uh, Hebrew and the Greek, the word spirit is breath or wind. So this is an invisible force that drastically changes the, the, the shape and the landscape of the world. Without wind, without breath or oxygen, we would not survive. Wind is a powerful force. It can be destructive, and it's very constructive. And I would say even the destructive winds do good in their own right. There, there are good things that come from even destructive winds that perhaps we might argue with or find fault with that idea from you know our understanding of what a hurricane can do or a tornado. Yes, obviously it brings a lot of destruction and death, but it is a way that God has created nature to clean and to recycle air and to move things about, move weather patterns around the world. And the wind is very, it's a powerful force. And so in that sense, 
That is what the Bible is speaking of when it speaks of God as a spirit. We see the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Oftentimes, more, more often than not, nine times out of 10, I would even say, when you read spirit of God, Holy Spirit, the, the, the Holy Ghost, you're going to read an action word that follows that probably within the next sentence or two, because it's always referencing to God's movement in the earth. Wind moves, constantly moves. Wind changes and shapes things. God is moving. God is changing and shaping things. God is breathing life, all of these things. So the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Um, the, my spirit, the Lord said, shall not always strive with man. The word strive means work with God. In it. It's another action idea. Um, the spirit rested upon them. In other words, the spirit came and, and alighted upon whoever it's speaking of here in Numbers eleven twenty six. And the spirit of the Lord will come upon them. Again, another action. The spirit of the Lord is coming. It's moving. God, and obviously, if God fills all time and space, God can't really come or go anywhere. But it's a way of describing the action of God. God is is manifesting himself upon these people. And like the wind comes from the north or from the east or from the west, uh, so the Spirit of God seems to move into somebody's life in an active way. And that's that's always described using the terminology Spirit of God. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is acting, is doing, is, is, is working. And finally, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 and 4. And so uh, the, the Spirit of God is uh, a way to emphasize God who is holy, he is all-present, he's invisible, he's powerful, he's all-knowing, yet he is working, he's breathing, he's filling, he's, he's coming upon, he's resting on, he's filling with, he's working with, he's moving on. It's God's invisible work among all humans, and essentially there's no limit for him. Now, a lot of times you can find where the Old Testament will say the Spirit of the Lord is doing this, and then the New Testament will talk about Jesus in the same way. Jesus is doing this. The Spirit of the Lord is going to accomplish this, and then in, in the New Testament, it's Jesus who's accomplishing it. What's going on there? Is it two persons? Is Jesus taking over the jobs the Holy Spirit was supposed to do? No, Jesus is full of the Spirit. Jesus is full of the Spirit of God, and so when Jesus does something, it's the Holy Spirit doing it, because Jesus is full of the Spirit. Now, that brings us to the next, the next understanding. We've talked about Father. We've talked about Spirit. Now, let's talk about Son, the Son of God. The phrase, God the Son, is not a biblical phrase. The reason I'm emphasizing this is because the doctrine of the Trinity emphasizes that there's a, the phrase God the Father, that's biblical. God the Spirit, that's not biblical. And God the Son, that's not biblical. There is no biblical reference for those phrases. And, and it's important because there is no God the Son. There is the Son of God, and there is the Spirit of God, but there is no God the Spirit or God the Son. That emphasizes 
a trinity and even uh, tritheism. So tritheism is saying there's actually three distinctive gods, not just in the Godhead, but there are literally three gods, literally three gods. The trinity espouses that there is one God divided into three persons. So it's, it's a one in three kind of ideology. But that, again, does not line up with what the Scripture teaches. The term Son of God refers to, exclusively refers to God as manifested in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ. Since the term Father refers to God's deity alone, the term Son refers to God's deity fused with humanity. You could almost, you could almost change, and I'm careful to say this because I don't want to add to or take away from the Word of God, but you could really read it with the understanding that when you read the word Son, you're reading about the flesh of God, God's flesh, God's manifested body that He indwelt to reconcile the world to Himself. We don't believe that the Father is the Son but that the Father is in the Son. There's a difference. The Father is not the Son. How can he be? Just like it, that's not, that doesn't make sense in the natural. A Father cannot be a Son. But the Father, in this case, in where it differs from our natural relationships with our own fathers, my Father is not in me. Tom Bryson is not in me. I bear some of Tom Bryson's character traits, but I am my own individual. I am my own person. Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the Father. The Father was in Christ. I cannot say that of my Father, but Jesus could say that of his. Now, I can say that of my heavenly Father. The Father is in me. The Spirit of God is in me. But Jesus could say that on a completely different level than we could ever say that. Um, Jesus said in John 14, verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. So Jesus is confessing here, the Father, the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of me. Jesus is God in the flesh. There's an old Latin phrase, incarnate, that, that literally means in the flesh. Jesus is God in the flesh. We have to remember and constantly remind ourselves the mainstream truth of the Word of God. God is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. There is no one beside him, Deuteronomy 4.35. And there is no other Savior, Hosea 13.4. We've got to remember these things. These are the mainstreams. These keep us grounded. This is the word of God. We've got to build it foundation stone upon foundation stone. We cannot build a new foundation to try to form the rest of the Bible around it. We've got to build with the materials that God is giving us. Therefore, because there is only one God, and there's no one beside God, and there's no other Savior but God, Jesus cannot be another God or another person of the Godhead. He is the person of the Godhead. Jesus is the only personification of the Godhead. There is no other personification 
of the Godhead except in Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. Now, um, what, what a lot of artists have tried to do over the years, and I'm going to show you a picture, and this is, this is obviously an old picture, and it is um, it is a, a picture that you know you might you might have seen once or twice or um, or or something similar to it. I'm going to try to quickly share it. So right here, you see a picture of the Trinity. We have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, the problem with this um, really comes from the, the, the misunderstood concept that, that you could actually see God. <laughs> and, and this is where, as, as when we're looking from the, the Scripture, the Scripture teaches us that no man has ever seen the Father. No one has ever seen the Father. So there is no image you can make of him. In fact, it was very much against God's law for you to make an image of him. You're not to have any images of God made, because there is only one image, that's Jesus Christ. That's why I like to say the, the, the modernized phrase, Jesus is God's selfie. If you're looking at Jesus, you're looking at what God looks like. Because without, without Jesus, you would never, ever see the Father. Jesus is the manifestation. The person of the Godhead is Jesus Christ. So it's, it's wrong to look at something and say, wow, so there is a Father, there is a Son, and there is a Spirit. No, not in that literal visible sense. The only visible representation you're going to have of the Godhead is Jesus Christ. And we read, we, we see this in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. It says, for in him, in Jesus, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus contains in his body the fullness of the Godhead. God literally references uh, to all that we have, the Godhead literally references to all we've learned about who God is, his character, his nature, his personality, his attributes, and the Bible is basically confessing or, or declaring that the fullness of all of that that God is dwells in Jesus Christ's body. As I said before, uh, according to John chapter 1, verse 18, no man has ever seen God at any time. The only unique Son, or the only begotten God, who is in the bosom, the intimate presence of the Father, He has declared Him. And the Amplified Bible puts it like this, He has revealed Him, the Father, and brought Him, the Father, out to where he can be seen. He has interpreted him, and he has made him known. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. Jesus is the only Son that God has ever begotten, that God has ever fathered 
or sired, if you will. Adam was God's son by creation. Jesus is the only human being to have been conceived by the Holy Spirit, miraculously by the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this is actually an interesting uh, revelation, and this when, when I saw this for the first time, I got, I remember being in my high school cafeteria reading through, because this is, I was in grade, probably grade 10 or 11, and I was really wrestling with the understanding of the oneness of God and trying to wrap my head around what the Bible was saying. When I read this scripture, I almost got up and ran around my cafeteria. I was so excited because I saw something that I, I had never noticed before. The Lord must have revealed it to me. Um, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, when, but while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary for thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Now, if I'm going to believe a Trinitarian doctrine or teaching, this messes with it big time. Because if I'm going to believe in the Trinity, the Father fathers the Son. But in this case, it's the Holy Ghost that is fathering the Son. So who's the Father? The Father or the Holy Ghost? And we have this issue. If, if we're trying to fit the Word of God into the doctrine of the, we're trying to squeeze it into the funnel of the Trinity, it doesn't fit. But if you read the Bible for, for itself, and you don't try to squeeze it into any particular doctrine— then it makes total sense because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the Father acting and doing things in the earth and is conceiving in the womb of Mary the Son of God, the flesh of God, in whom the Spirit is going to indwell. Then it makes complete and total sense. It makes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Luke one thirty four confirms this again, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore, that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Who fathered the Son? Well, it was the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's a different person at all. It's it's the Spirit of the Father who is who is conceiving in the womb of Mary the Son or the body that he is preparing to live in and indwell and offer as a sacrifice. This also helps us understand the big well, the, the big issue I had with, with the doctrine of the Trinity was how could a father give up his son to die a brutal death on the cross? And that that is difficult to, to deal with. As a father, I couldn't imagine surrendering my sons, one of them or both, to save the life of anybody. Now, I would go myself. I could I could conceive and and wrap my head around going myself and forfeiting my life to save someone if need to be, right? That that's something I could wrap my head around. I could conceive that. I cannot conceive sending my sons out and watching them go through a horrible pain and never stepping in to be like, "Look, stop." stop doing this to my kid, do it to me instead. I could never see myself not doing that. 
So, so this is a weird thing that the father is sending off his son to go do this, this job when you look at it from a Trinitarian perspective. When you look at it from the perspective of Scripture, God fathers a human body in which he himself loves because it's, it's finally the perfect human. You realize this? Adam messed it up. Adam was the first human God created, and Adam messed it up. God creates a new body, a new Adam, to a, a new kind of human to live in, and it's finally the perfect human. It's, it's sinless. Jesus was sinless. His body was perfect. His will was perfectly aligned with the Father. And so this is like finally, finally got the prototype right. <laughs> and he takes his best work and offers it up as a sacrifice for humanity that has constantly and consistently failed him for thousands of years. Now, that makes sense. I can wrap my head around that because God creates something that he himself indwells, and then he offers his own body as a sacrifice for our sin. Now, that that makes sense to me. That that aligns with the Word of God, and that aligns with my even my sense of morality. And so, we understand then that, that Jesus Christ is the manifestation of God. He's the visible image of God, but he's also the sacrifice that God is going to offer on the cross for the sins of humanity. As I said before in Romans 5.19, the Bible declares that by one man's sin, many were made sinners. So by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. See, sin is spread through Adam because Adam was the one who sinned. One man's disobedience, many were made sinners. When Adam sinned, he 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 opened the door for everybody else after him to sin. Since death, since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For in Adam all die. When you're in Adam, and we're all the children of Adam, the sons and the daughters of Adam and Eve, um, so as in Adam, all die. We, we've been handed down this genetic code of sin and death. So it is in Christ, all shall be made alive. So, so the question might some might ask, why, 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 why was God born of a virgin woman? Why did he conceive in Mary's womb a body? Why wouldn't he just try to work with one of Adam's? progeny or one of Adam's children, because Adam's seed is corrupted from the very beginning. So, since sin is passed down through Adam and not through Eve, then God circumvented the nature of sin by fathering his own body in the womb of Mary. By doing this, Jesus was free of the sin problem. Jesus was free of the of of the temptation well not so much the temptation but the 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 just the the draw and the proclivity to sin Jesus was free of that pull he was not at all sick he was not at all weak he was very much 
the dominant human being. He was the one that that carried with him all of the promises of God. The promises of Abraham were resting in Christ perfectly. The promises and the mission that God gave to Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to have dominion over it, it was all Christ, Jesus Christ, naturally upon his birth, because he escaped the passing down of the sin marker that was given through Adam's children. So we can see why God would father a body for him to indwell, so that that body could be offered up as sinless, the perfect, spotless lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the one without sin, could take on the sins of the world because he had no sins himself to pay for. He had the the the, the capital and the wherewithal and the ability and the right, the legal right, to pay for the sins of all mankind. So we see God's plan unfolding. Now, I, I, I'm going to have to stop here tonight because there's just, there's more questions that that I think need to be answered. And so we'll have to come back at this um, on when we when we come back. So just as quickly, we're going to be canceling service on the 25th, on the 28th, and on the 1st. But on January the 4th, we're going to come back to Zoom Bible study. We're going to finish this and do part two of the Mighty God in Christ, because there's all kinds of other questions about why did Jesus Christ pray? If he was God, manifest in the flesh, what did he need to pray for? What went on at his baptism? What was that all about? How do we understand that in the light of the mainstream truth of the Word of God? And I'd like to address some of those commonly asked questions or understandings of the Word, but this is a good foundation to start on. Well, have a Merry Christmas, everybody, and we will see you in the new year. God bless you. Have a great weekend and great rest of your week and day and love you all. Take care. Oh, one thing before you go, just remember, um, even though we're not having services, if you could continue to give and uh, support in your tithes and your offerings, please don't forget. Uh, sometimes when we take weeks off um, for, for different reasons and different holidays, offerings and tithes drop down just because it's our human nature. We kind of forget about doing it since we're not in the building, but just try to remember to continue to support the, the church, the work of the ministry here so that we can continue to pay the bills that won't stop when we're away. Um, God bless you for that. And hope you have a great Christmas and a great new year. God bless you. And we'll see you again. Take care.